uh, the start of the week and plenty going on on the radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. All I wanted to know was why. Why Niall? We don't know the answers. All I have to believe is that there is a reason. Everybody that met him loved him. So I believe that there is some reason that he had to go and be there for somebody else. That's all I can you think. Do you really, yeah. I think I have to believe that. There's a tentative date going around amongst the media that he's very likely to announce on November 14, partly because he's so ticked off by Ron DeSantis becoming the the next big um, Republican rock star, although I don't think he is, but nobody puts Trump in a corner. And that's going to be the crunch issue for this COP. It's going to be about money. It's going to be about countries who are now facing up to huge extremes. And we'll start with a real mystery story from Today with Claire Byrne, 48 years to the day, the disappearance of Lord Lucan. And many of you listening will remember Lord Lucan. He was an earl who went on the run in 1974 after his children's nanny was murdered in his home. He fled the scene. He's never been seen since, although his car was later found dumped in New Haven, East Sussex. However, there's been a twist in the open case with a facial recognition expert saying he believes he's matched Lord Lucan's face to an older man who is living in Australia. Laura Thompson is the author of A Different Class of murder, the story of Lord Lucan, and she joins me on the line. Laura, good morning to you. There have been a couple of revelations over the last few days about this case, which we'll come to in a moment. But will you take us back to 1974? Tell us about Lord Lucan and the death, the murder of 29 year old Sandra Rivett. Yes, yes. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, so 48 years ago today, um, Lord Lucan, uh, well, the, the, the setup was that he was um, separated from his wife, Veronica. They'd been separated for almost two years, and there'd been a very, very bitter custody battle over these three children that Sandra Rivet, the poor girl who was found murdered, was, was one of a succession of nannies who'd been employed to look after these children. Um, you know, we're, we're in Aristo um, setting here and, and that way of life. They, um, Lord Lucan was um, a professional gambler. He, um, uh, and, and in order to overturn the custody case decision, which had given the children to his wife, he was gambling like, frankly, like a lunatic, in or, you know, chasing money, which is the worst thing you can do, in order to get the money to overturn this decision. But this was proving more and more uh, clearly impossible. And the police theory is that frustration and anger and basic financial despair um, led him to plan to murder his wife. Um, But in the dark basement of these, you know, these tall, thin London houses in the dark basement, Sandra Rivet, who'd gone down to make some tea, um, and a light bulb had been removed, and she was killed in a case of mistaken identity. That's the official theory, um, and it's the one that most people tend to believe. And Lady Lucan was then attacked upstairs in the hall, and then she, according to her version of events, she sort of talked her husband down, um, and um, he ceased the attack. Um, and then she managed to escape and as you rightly put it, he's, he, he, he drove off and hasn't, there's been no official sighting 
um, since the early hours of the 8th of November. But plenty of unofficial ones. And in the 1975 yeah. inquest into the death of Sandra River, the, the verdict was, returned by the jury at the time, murder by Lord Lucan. Now, the police were never able to find him, as you say. Many believe that he jumped off a, a ferry in the Channel. Isn't that right? Yes. Um, so he, he, the, the, the Lady Luke and Veronica managed to, uh, she was a resourceful, very, very clever woman, much more intelligent than him, and managed to escape, ran to a pub at the end of the road. I mean, the, 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 you know, you can, you can understand why this case has a kind of lurid um, tabloid aspect, because there are so many sort of images and, you know, resonances that stay with us, even though it is, in fact, a ghastly tragedy. But she managed to escape. He drove off. He, he went to a friend's house in um, Sussex, sort of halfway between London and Newhaven. She's the last person that we know saw him because he wrote letters and posted them from there. Um, the car was found abandoned in Newhaven, which is, of course, a port. So the theory, you know, checks were different then. You didn't have to have all the documentation and everything today. The theory is that he got on a ferry and jumped off. Um, I've always believed that myself because you know if he had planned to kill his wife the fact is it went wrong he was uh, he he was not just a murderer he was a murderer who you know massively screwed up and i don't know what he would have had to live for mm-hmm. um and the letters that he wrote seemed to me suicidal but i know that if I had a pound for every sighting of Lord Lucan there's been in the last 48 years, I would be extraordinarily rich. Um, and, there are, and as you rightly said, there are, there's now this new, and, you know, one has to say there's, there's, there, there are convincing aspects to this, this new one because it's been given a kind of forensic, you know, um, verisimilitude, if you like. And this sighting has some weight to it. This man who says that he has matched this uh, older man's face in Australia to that of Lord Lucan, it's Professor Mm -hmm. Hassan Ugeil. He's a leading expert in this field. He correctly Mm -hmm. identified the Russian agents behind the Salisbury Novichok poisonings. And he's saying, this is not a theory. This is a fact. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, an incredibly reputable person. Absolutely. I mean, I have to say that when I saw that, that Professor Ugale had said this, I thought, okay, um, you know, I can't, you know, the number of theories that I've sort of dismissed since writing my book. And when I was, when I was writing the book, you know, that he was a, you know, he'd been seen everywhere, literally everywhere. And, um, you know, ridiculous, insane theories. Um, and, and I have to say, the idea that he was a Buddhist um, living in Brisbane doesn't, on the face of it, convince me. Um, because the thing is, Claire, I don't know what he's been doing. Um, I don't know how he got out of England. What people seem to forget is that he, he, this plan went wrong. If we assume that he did kill Sandra, um, I personally think perhaps a hitman was employed and, and that's why it went wrong. But if he did, he wasn't meant to have to get out of the country at five minutes' notice. The idea that his rich and powerful friends, who were mostly a load of no-hoper, broke gamblers, the idea that they all clubbed together and got him out of the country and it was all so brilliant, and this plot that no-one's ever been able to solve was conceived you know, at the drop of a hat, and, and what's he been living on? How was it done? Um, 
I know some people do think it, and there is a kind of fascination to that, but the logistics of it do confound me, I have to say. Listen, the other thing I really want to talk to you about, Laura, is the uh, revelation that these Cluedo cards were found in his car. I mean, we hadn't heard this before. No. Colonel Mustard in the hall with the lead piping, these three... I mean, you know. <laughs> do, you, uh, do, do, you, do you accept that that actually happened? I mean, what do you know about this? Well, that supposedly, according to this, the last review of the case, which was done in 2004, that the information from that has been leaked to the press and that these three cards were from the board game Cluedo were found in this Ford Corsair that he borrowed and driven off and that was found at New Haven. Um... I've got to say, Claire, I, I do find that, you know, that these, these tabloids sort of, oh, and didn't he look like Colonel Massive? I mean, come on. I, um, but, you know, someone has come up with this. I, I don't believe for one second that Lord Lucan put those cards in the, in, in the car as a sort of what they call a sick boast. I mean, he just wasn't that sort of man. If if he did this murder, he did it in a state of, you know, hysteria, m- drunkenness, despair. I'm not exonerating him, but, you know, it wasn't a planned, uh, you, you know, not a highly planned sort of Agatha Christie type um, thing. Um, I think it's much more likely that they would put their... I don't, I, I don't know is the truth. I am truly baffled. Laura Thompson, author of A Different Class of Murder, the story of Lord Lucan, from today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy Show, Professor John Sweeney on COP27. Now, as you'll know, if you're listening to the news, that the COP27 Climate Summit um, is currently going on in Egypt. Uh, Someone has been told that humanity must cooperate or perish. The UN chief, Antonio Guterres, said we're on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. He also said the earth is sending out a distress signal to us. Um, So what exactly happens at a COP summit or or a conference of the parties? That's what COP stands for. John Sweeney is a climatologist and emeritus professor at Maynooth University and has attended around 10 COP meetings over the years and he joins us now on the line. Thanks for taking time out to talk to us today, John. Good afternoon, Ray. Yeah, good to talk to you. Um, Okay, so, so just what's the easiest way to explain the COP thing? Well, I suppose it's like the report card people used to get at school. Every year, the leaders of the world turn up um, and they are asked the question, really, what have you done to further the agreement you made 30 years ago um, at the first United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change meeting? And what it consists of is really a very large-scale gathering for the first few days, generally speaking, the heads of state, the heads of government come and they make a lot of noble statements uh, about what should be done and why we're really on the highway to hell that uh, Guterres um, has more or less said uh, in recent days. And then they go back and they leave the negotiations, the hard detail, uh, to their public servants and to their ministers until roughly the middle of the second week then, the ministers and the politicians from below heads of government level often will arrive and they will decide, yes, we'll go with that pledge or we won't go with that pledge. And it's really a very imperfect 
type of operation. There's no doubt about it. When you say COP27, it means that there have been 27 of these meetings taking place. And really, we haven't cracked the problem uh, yet. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is the United Nations requirement that you can only reach a decision unanimously. You can't reach a decision by majority. So you have to get 194 countries all to agree to something. And that's very difficult because countries are like people. They look after their own self-interest first and foremost. And while they may say something very noble in public, when they come back home, it's often very difficult to sell that to their people back home if it means changes in the way they organise society there. So it's a very imperfect operation. It's the best we have. And unfortunately, un unless we support multilateral engagement on this stage, uh, we have the awful alternative of countries all doing their own thing mm. and looking after themselves. And then we are in trouble at that point. So, so the, the, the main measure that people be, will be familiar with is emissions. So in the 30 years of COP, have the emissions decreased? Certainly not. No, and they are still increasing. Okay, <laughs> they're increasing. So does that mean? Does that mean that it's been a failure? Light. It's been a failure, then, has it? In a sense, in a sense, it does. Uh, it means that countries have simply paid lip service to their commitments. The only glimmer of light, really, we have is that the increase in emissions this year uh, has slowed down a lot from previous years. So it may well be that we're beginning to bend that curve mm. of increasing emissions. And that's due to, of course, the uptake of renewable energy across the world, uh, renewable transport systems and so on. So it may be that, you know, there, there, there's possibilities. But you're right. Um, if you were to look back and say, what have we achieved through the Kyoto Protocol? What have we achieved through the Paris Agreement? We haven't achieved a reduction in emissions. And we, we know from the science that we have to get a 45% reduction in global emissions by 2030 if we're to avoid dangerous tipping points from which we may not recover. And that will affect all of us in, in, in the world, including us here in Ireland in a big way, if we don't manage to get this problem under control. Otherwise, we leave a huge legacy of problems for those that come after us. Who's not there this year, John? Well, they, they're all there, except, of, except Mr. Putin, who won't be there. Um, and it's, uh, it's clear that although they're there in spirit, they may not be talking to each other very much in practice. There has been a breakdown in communication between the United States and China, the two largest polluters uh, ever since the, the trouble over Taiwan emerged a few months ago. So they're not talking too, too well mm. with each other. Russia won't be talking very much to anybody, I suspect. Um, and uh, otherwise, a lot of people are there. Mr. Biden will be there. Uh, Rishi Sunak will be there. Artishuk is there making his five-minute speech tomorrow morning. Uh, and he will say some very interesting and positive things about the way Ireland is willing to help out in financing the sustainable development of developing countries. And that's going to be the crunch issue for this COP. It's going to be about money. It's going to be about countries who are now facing up to huge extremes. John Sweeney from The Ray Darcy Show. 
And on the Ryan Tipperty show, Orla Martin was talking about loss and grief at an early age and turning your life around. But first, she started at the beginning and her love of gymnastics. So I suppose from the age of four, I was just bouncing around and my parents put me into gymnastics. I was just one of those hyper children that never stopped. And (laughs) we all know those kids. I'm I'm, I'm already (laughs) connecting with you here, yes. So yeah, I pretty much was that child that's bounced on a bed nonstop. So they figured out that a trampoline would be better for me. So put me into gymnastics. And from there, um, just my love of training, competitiveness started actually literally, I think, from the day they put me in that door. In terms of gymnastics and being competitive in in, in sports. Absolutely, that yeah, uh, okay. yeah. I were, just, were, you, were, you, were you frighteningly competitive or were you no, in a friendly competitive? Friendly, oh, well, I don't know. My competitors will tell you. I'm only joking, I'm kidding. Um, no, I wouldn't. I suppose I was more competitive with myself. Mm. I liked a challenge and if you set me a challenge, I'd want to I'd want to break that challenge. I'd want to really fight to get it. Classic sports person. This is it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the the gymnastics that that got more serious didn't it as as you got older it sure did yeah so I suppose from the age of six I actually started training quite a lot of hours Um, what does that mean Um, um, I mean at that age it was probably and nowadays it's probably all changed (laughs) I think it's probably a lot more but at that age back in the 80s I'm going to say it would have been 10 to 12 hours a week the age of six which at six is a lot it is but I think at that age it was fun I loved it you enjoyed it so it wasn't like I was in there you know forced it was I wanted to be there the longer the better the more hours the better you know okay it wasn't a child labour issue you weren't up to chimneys definitely not no 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 no. and you're enjoying that and uh, uh, regarding representing Ireland then yeah I very, very lucky um, that in my teenage years I made the Irish squad and um, was represented my country, yeah. which was, uh, and actually just we're on that subject, Reese. We mentioned him this yes, morning. What I a know, great I heard result. That. How amazing that we have a world champion. I mean, yeah. it's just phenomenal. And I, and I can't imagine, I do, I know the work and the commitment that he has put into this and for our country now to have this world champion. Isn't amazing, that great? Amazing. It, it's the green jersey thing, isn't it? it? Is, and you absolutely. wore that jersey, so you know what it's like. And I know how hard it is for gymnasts as well. Okay. It's very, it is it's the, one of the toughest sports in the world. Physically. Physically yeah. and mentally. And it's, mentally. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough sport and I never got a world medal in gymnastics but I'm here to root for all you other amazing gymnasts out there. Okay. Yeah, unreal. But you got, as I say, you got to represent your country which is, which is a really important thing and you got involved in training camps in the USA and the UK and of course uh, here in Ireland. Yeah. So life was going just fine really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was big into sports, you know. Um, it led me as you said there to the training camps went off and I coached in the States and um, was very lucky to have also been part of a team that trained in the UK in a campus called Lillish Hall and um, really my life revolved studies and obviously sport yeah yeah. Then Ryan asked Orla about meeting Niall Let's let's go to St Stephen's night then uh, in in, okay. in when you were uh, seventeen, nearly 17, eighteen. Nearly it was 18. a week before your eighteenth birthday. Yeah, okay. And you were at a nightclub called Shenanigans. Shenanigans. <laughs> what a great name for a nightclub! And uh, you were obviously having a good night there, yeah, and Stephen's yeah. night as as one does. And who did you meet? So um, yeah, I met Niall. Mm-hmm. So Niall was this incredible guy that I met. Um, 17, I will say it was just turning 18. Yeah. I was 18 five days later, so... Um, oh, sorry, see what you're yes, doing there. Yes, I forgot yes, about yes, the yes, legalities. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were having a glass of seven up when yes. you met Niall, yes. Um, so, yeah, that was Stevens's night and, um, yeah. What I was suppose, it about him? He just big cheeky, big cheeky grin. Um, he was friends, uh, he was cousin, sorry, with friends of mine mm-hmm. and um, just, just clicked, I suppose. 
17, you're, you know, you're out. We, I suppose as well, as you said, having a glass seven up, I actually wasn't drinking. So there you go. Um, we were, I was, and he was kind of the same. He'd have a beer. He wasn't into, you know, the big mad nights out. And I think we just were on the same level. Okay. Uh, invited him to my 18th five days later. Yeah. And, what um, did you bond over, do you think? What did you have in common? Both our families were extremely sporty. So I have two younger brothers that were extremely sporty. He has two sisters, one older, who was actually on a basketball scholarship in the States. Niall played basketball. Um, his younger sister, Paula, was a phenomenal, phenomenal sports person as well. We just knew that commitment and the dedication and I suppose the passion that you, was behind sport. You, you both spoke fluent sport. That's, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but it's nice that you were able to bond over that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and yeah. You, it was coming out of your ears and both sides of the family. Yeah, and I think we both loved to help others in sport. You know, we both loved to coach. We both loved to inspire. We both loved working with the younger generation. So yeah. I was coaching gymnastics. He coached basketball. And it just, I don't know, just, I suppose at the time it was just faith, wasn't it? And you got together. We uh, did, became, yes. uh, you know, partners in, <laughs> yeah. in, in every sense because he, it was it was that time he was helping you finish off the college project. It was on a Saturday morning, yeah, wasn't it? So, um, yeah, so I fast forward, I suppose I was, I had my leaving cert to complete and um, did my leaving cert and went on to university. And back in those days, um, we didn't have a computer at home. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know? that's not that, yeah. So my mum's friends had a computer and uh, myself and I went up to finish a project. He was working in the bank, so he knew how to use a computer properly. Yeah. And what were you studying? <laughs> uh, I was doing sports. <laughs> sports course. science out in UCD at the time. Great. Um, and he was helping me finish off a project and literally was then dropping me. I had the project finished and I also was in a drama um, group in Scaries and I had a rehearsal that day. He was heading off to basketball coaching and he dropped me back down the road to my drama and off he went to his basketball um, coaching when my mum arrived. And my mum would never, would never, ever come into my drama rehearsals. You know, at this stage I was, um, you know, I was older. I was like, I wasn't, I was a child. So I kind of said, gosh, she, she forgotten the key to the house or something, you know. And she looked at me and I knew there was something. And um, I thought actually it was my dad because the last person I would think would be anybody else. And she just said, there's been an accident. Yeah. And um, I said, OK. And she said, no, I've been in a car crash. And I was like, right, OK. Um, car crash, Grant. Like, that's a tip, you know. So she said, we're going to go to Beaumont. So I got in the car. And I laugh now because I could just picture him sitting in the bed when I got there saying, what are you all worried about? Yeah. Niall was a complete joker. Now, I mean a messer. Like, he had this big, cheeky, cheeky, infectious grin. So I said, we're going to arrive and he's going to be laughing at us saying, what are you all rushing here? I'm fine. But um, that wasn't the case. And we got there and we knew it was serious. His parents and um, his sisters, his sister Emer was actually away. They, she was in um, university in the States. So they brought us into a room and I just knew that there was something. But yet they said, no, we've, he's, he's, he's still here. There's um, internal injuries, um, but we've had to induce them into a coma because um, there's been some brain there's swelling on the brain. So my young naivety, I was like, oh, sure, that's grand. They've induced him. You know, that's, he's, he's still here. Um, but those five days were long. And um, on the Thursday, they, um, they had to turn off the life support machine. So Nala's family, I mean, they were just amazing to me. Uh, we, they were with me and I was with them for every step of the way. And but a light was just gone. I just there was a light inside me that just was gone. What a, what a horribly, the whimsy of, of life and death. So, so unfair. 
Like, why? That's all I wanted to know was why. Why Nile? I mean, and I know there's so many people asking that same question every day and we don't know the answers. All I have to believe is that there is a reason and because of his, I suppose, his his cheekiness and I think his infectious, like everybody that met him loved him. So I believe that there is some reason that he had to go and be there for somebody else. That's all I can you think. Do you really? Yeah. I think I have to believe that. Yeah. You know. Um, if that helps you. It does. Yeah. yeah. And I and I firmly believe he is still with me all the time. Really. Yeah. Yeah. How many years ago are we talking? So about? I am forty-one now, <laughs> and um, I was I was twenty, um, nineteen. Sorry, when um, when it happened. Yeah, and it 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 doesn't get much easier, does it? Telling it, that story, it I'd doesn't say. get any yeah. easier. Yeah. And I and I I think, you know, my heart just it, it breaks for everybody around that knew him and loved him because. Yeah. I know the person he was and the person he would be today. And Orla spoke about the grieving process. I don't think you ever stop grieving. Yeah. I mean, the first the first year, year and a half for me, and I know I was young and there's so many other people out there the same, that were the same age as me or have mm. been in this situation, but I didn't understand grief. You know, I, I, I just couldn't believe that he was gone. I felt so lonely, although I have an amazing family. My parents, my own brothers, my friends, they were just incredible. But I still just felt so lonely. All I wanted was him to hug me. I didn't want anyone else's hug. Um, not, nobody else around me just at that time filled, filled any part of my heart. And that's really hard to say because I feel so selfish and I feel mean saying that. But that's, that, that's the truth. That's how I felt at that time. Yeah. It's actually very beautifully put that there's only a certain person yeah, that could do that, that, could to, do that, that yeah. to that really important Part, bit of your yeah, heart. That's it. And when they're gone, um, you, and especially if it's if it's somebody who's gone forever, as you know, yeah. it, it must seem really hard to comprehend. And when you're younger and you've less experience of life and death and the universe, yeah, yeah. You, you're, you're, it, the puzzle is even harder oh, to... the puzzle was just so hard to navigate. Yeah. You know... How did you? How did you confront it? Or So I suppose at the beginning, I didn't, to be honest, mm. Ryan. I just, um, I locked myself away. Put a fake smile on every now and then when there was a family event or there was something and you could hear the whispers, oh, she's doing great. She's doing great. You could hear and I people, wanted to yeah. scream at them. I'm not... Um, but I did lock myself away. Um, what does that mean? Do you mind me asking? Yeah, locking I suppose yourself away? I was still living at home with my parents. So I literally would lock myself in my bedroom and not actually lock the key and, yeah. you know, but shut I'd the shut the door. Exactly. Shut the door. And, um, you know, my poor mum, she was amazing. My dad, they would do everything to try and, you know, they were doing their best to, to take me out. But no, nothing, nothing would get me out that door. Um, I had amazing friends, I said, that would call in and chat to me and try and help. Um, and I suppose fast forwarding months, I, I don't really know timelines to be honest at that time because there's so many blanks. It's I mean, a, it's also a blur. It's blur. That's the word. Yeah. Blur and yeah. blanks. When just one day I just had this like little tiny flicker, a little flicker in me that says, you know, you need to feel you again. I had this spark and that spark was gone, completely gone. Yeah. And I knew it was gone, but I didn't care if that makes sense. It like, does actually, yeah. I, I just didn't care it was gone. But this one day I did, this little bit of me just went, oh, you need to be Orla again. Like, but then the guilt would come in. I can't be Orla without Niall, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. So I, I, the trigger, little tiny flicker was there. So that was kind of the first trigger moment. And 
I said, I need, I need just to like move. I need to scream. I need to do something. And it sounds so ridiculous, but I actually just started to like doing jumping jacks in my sitting room. At this point, I had the curtains down in my parents' sitting room and I was watching nonstop ridiculous parly American TV and I just felt I need just to move. I just got this this little trigger and I like a lunatic started doing jumping jacks. You were six burpees. again. Literally, I was six you, again. You, you went Literally, back to that state back where you were at your happiest. When I knew, yeah, that's it. In a when weird way. When I was way. at my happiest. Yeah. When I was moving, jumping, sweating. I just wanted to sweat and I felt kind of oh, this rush just coming out of me and it was all in the sitting room. <laughs> Like ridiculous. Um, when that was, I literally just start crying and so much emotion came out. Amazing. And I just felt that little bit better. Yeah. Just something for a short time, but I felt something that little bit better. And as the days went on, I, I, I literally started doing that on a daily basis. I'm talking five, ten minutes a day, but just those endorphins started to creep in a little, little by little. My brain started to unfog a little bit. Um Still, obviously, deep in grief, but starting to feel a little bit better when I took it to outside. We live, I'm so lucky to live in Scaries by the beach mm. and started to literally go out running on the beach. And I know, I'm sure people did see me on the days the tears would be running down my face. Many a times I stop and let a roar. I just had to. The chest was so tight that I just needed to just release. And the only way I knew was now was to run and to literally roar. Um, and that was the start of my my kind of get my spark back. Yeah. Um, it's you, you describe what sounds like a, a a house that was darkened by sadness and then room by room a little light was going on. A little, yeah. The room first room, one was yeah. just the tiny back room, the box room. That was the, yeah. the beginning and then another one and then, then you're on the beach and another light goes yeah, on and absolutely. slowly the, that, the lights start to come the on. Lights, that's exactly it, Ryan. Slowly the lights start to come back on. Um, and I know anyone who's going through grief or has been through grief know that the guilt is still there. You're like, I should not not be grieving. That was the hard part for me because I think I was younger that I felt guilty. Yeah. Nearly not locked up, but then I started to feel better. So I was like, OK, I need I need to keep moving. I need this to keep going forward. I jumped forward yeah. to the moment you became a bodybuilder. <laughs> I mean, that's a big leap. <laughs> We've gone from your, that dramatic scene of you crying on the beach with the tears rolling down your face and trying to confront the sadness. But we've got, I've got this sense that, OK, let's let's keep going now going, because yeah. the lights are coming on now. And now, now you're doing bodybuilding. I mean, in this part of our story. Yeah. Um, and you competed at home and abroad. That obviously gave you something in your life yeah. and purpose or what have you. Um and then time goes on. Time moves on. You meet you, you meet a new man in your life. Yeah. Do you want to talk to me about him? And Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose um, I met Tommy, who's yeah. my now husband, and I call him my knight in shining armour. He, I met him on as I was coming out, like, I, it's hard to describe. I can't say at the other side of my grief, because obviously you still grieve, but at the other side of me starting to find myself again. Orla Martin from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, ahead of election day in the US midterms, Marion McKeown was casting an eye on the political landscape. 
Now, tomorrow is election day in the US midterms with Americans being offered two vastly different visions for the direction of the country. More than 40 million people have already cast their ballots in what is the first election since the January 6th insurrection in 2021. Over the weekend, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton and Joe Biden, four of the six living presidents were on the campaign trail for the final big push in an effort to deliver their critical final arguments. Now, for more on this, we're joined by by Marion McKeown, columnist with the Business Post. Marion, thank you for joining us at what I know is a very busy time for you. And as I said there, the parties are rolling out their big guns. We've seen those big swings in both directions. There is a consensus emerging, though, is there not, that Republicans will win back control of the House. Democrats then have a shot at retaining their Senate majority. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's about right, Claire. Although I will give the caveat that I feel with this uh, midterm election, it's so hard to predict. You know, if I were told that Republicans took back the House by 50 seats, I wouldn't be surprised. If Democrats held on to it by the skin of their teeth, I wouldn't be surprised either. There there are so many. And then there are things happening like in Oregon could end up with the first Republican governor in in 30 or 40 years. Uh, Kathy Hochul, the New York governor, looks like she's in a very tight race now. Uh, one, One of the most prominent Democrats in, in the House of Congress and could lose his seat, Sean Patrick Maloney. Things are so volatile in America at the moment that it's really hard to predict these things. Uh, I think just if you just take history alone, um, it, it, the Democrats are almost bound to lose control of the House. But if this were an ordinary election, you would go with that. But as I say, it's such an extraordinary election. There are so many things up for grabs and there's so much at stake here. And again, with the Senate, um, it could remain 50-50. I, I think it could. I think Democrats could hang on to the Senate. But again, if it ended up a 46-54 to Republicans, it wouldn't necessarily be surprising either. I know mm-hmm. that's of no help to any of the <laughs> listeners, but it's just things are so volatile and they're really going down to the wire. I've spent a lot of time in the last week in Georgia, in Nevada and in Arizona. And, you know, it, it, it is alarming when you see what is being touted by some of the candidates like Mark Finchman, Carrie Lake in in Arizona. But then the crowds that they're getting are not that enormous. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily a good indicator, because I I saw in 2020, Trump had thousands and thousands of people at his rallies and they were all convinced he was going to win but it, to me I, I just feel that I, I could not honestly call this either way I yeah. think it's so uncertain. F- fair enough when you say uh, that it was interesting to see what the candidates were touting what do you mean? Well, I, what I mean is that if, again, in in um, Nevada and in Arizona, if you listen to Carrie Lake, and, and she's just an example because I spent a lot of time covering her events, uh, she uh, really was talking about problems. She was offering solutions for problems that didn't exist, but she had no solutions for the problems that actually did. And an example of this is she was promising that no five-year-olds will be taught about sex in kindergarten schools in Arizona if she's governor. Well, five-year-olds aren't being taught about sex in, in Arizona at the moment. Uh, the same thing with critical race theory. She also said that she would declare an invasion on the border. I spoke with some Border Patrol guys and they just laughed. And their, their answer was, and then what? And Claire asked Marion about former President Trump. 
You, you mentioned uh, Pennsylvania and Dr. Oz, who people may know from TV, is running for a Senate seat there for the Republicans and Donald Trump was out in support of him. And I just read That's somewhere right. last night that he had to be convinced not to announce that he was going to run for president in 2024. That is absolutely correct. Donald Trump, I think, uh, you know, th- there's a tentative date going around amongst the media that he's very likely to announce on November 14th. So he, uh, it seems almost inevitable at this stage that he will um, announce, partly because he's so ticked off by Ron DeSantis becoming the, the, the next big um, Republican rock star, although I don't think he is. But nobody puts Trump in a corner, like nobody <laughs> whatsoever. And I think that he wants to get back out there, but also for a very practical reason. I think he believes that if he is running for the presidency again, that he is somewhat fireproofed against some of the criminal charges that he could be facing potentially, including in Atlanta, where where he's accused of basically trying to coerce the Secretary of State there during the 2020 election into finding votes for him, into committing election fraud, basically. And of course, the January 6th. And then we, you know, and then there, there are the other investigations as well. I think he feels he's safest if he's in the political arena, that it will afford him some protection. And also, it's been a huge moneymaker for as well. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the Trump uh, packs have been raising an absolute fortune for him. So I think he probably will run again and he doesn't want DeSantis clearing that pitch at all. Yeah, and DeSantis then has refused to confirm that he'll fulfil a full term if he's elected again, which is a fair indication yeah. where his head is at. Oh, he, he's going for it. But, uh, you know, people think DeSantis is inevitable, Claire. I don't. He has literally got the personality of the leg of a table. He, he is, Trump is a cult of personality. You know, he really is. DeSantis is this, it's hard to like him. I mean, I'm not, you know, people worship Trump, whether, whether you know, you like him or not. He does, you see when you go to his events that he has this sort of, he casts a spell over them almost uh, with this bizarre charisma. Ron DeSantis has no charisma. He's very competent. He's very smart. He's very capable, but he's a hard guy to like. And when you're running for the presidency, you know, at least some people have to like you. Now we have election deniers on the ballot. Some say around 300. Yeah. And this is the first election since January 6th, 2021, as we've said before. And the voting has gone off without a hitch up to now. But do you expect that individual outcomes will be contested? Oh, I think that there's no doubt. And you can feel the tension. Um, I mean, basically what Republicans have said and so many prominent Republicans going into this race, it's basically heads I win, tails you lose. So what they're saying is if I don't win, you've cheated to the Democrats. And Carrie Lake has said that and Adam Laxalt and a lot of the big high profile candidates have refused to say they'll accept the results unless they win. And and that is really worrying. That's a, straight out of the Trump playbook. I saw quite a lot of tension in Arizona because you did have these people who were turning up around the, the drop boxes and they were carrying guns and they were wearing military gear and they were yelling at people and heckling. Now, that has stopped because of a court order uh, over the last couple of days. But there is a huge tension in some of these swing states. Georgia is another swing state where there's huge tension. Uh, and, and I feel that I I don't think we're going to know the results of these midterms 
straight away. I think it may take weeks. It even looks like in Arizona, it might be December before they know who actually wins the Senate race because it is neck and neck with Herschel Walker and with Raphael Warnock, the Democratic candidate, and also with the uh, governorship, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, there's a third candidate in there. If you don't get 50%, there has to be a runoff. So I think this kind of thing always causes tension where if the results are very clear straight away, then people kind of settle down. But if the races are being contested or if it's not clear, it almost creates an information vacuum where a lot of trouble can can be caused. And, th- and that was what really happened in 2020 as well. It's extraordinary. Uh, so I, yeah. I think we're in for a difficult time, a difficult couple of weeks. Marion McKeown from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, the return of the quiet carriage on the train. So-called quiet carriages are making a comeback on Erin Road Erin's Dublin to Cork route from this morning. We're joined by Jane Cregan, communications manager with Erin Road Erin. Uh, Jane, is it just this route for now? Yeah, it's just this route for now, um, Dublin to Cork. Um, obviously, we'll see how this goes and um, if there's feedback um, that there is um, a, a desire for this on other routes, we will look at it. But obviously, we may have capacity challenges on other routes because um, the Dublin to Cork service is hourly. Um, so we have much more capacity on this route. And how is it policed, Jane? Um, so we have uh, train hosts on board all of the Dublin to Cork services. Um, uh, so they will be available um, to police um, uh, the quiet carriage. But we also believe that there will be a, regu- um, a, a level of self-regulation and self-policing of it. You know, I suppose it's going to take a little bit of wh- a little bit of time um, for people to get familiar with it again. Um, but we have branding, clear branding on the carriage this time um, that shows that this is a quieter carriage. And if people are unaware of that, you know, I'm sure that their fellow passengers will let them know that. Um, and we don't anticipate that there will be a, a lot of trouble um, enforcing um, the quieter carriage. So it's quieter rather than entirely quiet. Yeah, I suppose, you know, within reason, within reason, you know, if you're with somebody and you want to speak to them quietly, you know, uh, for a short period of time uh, during the journey, I mean, that is fine. But I suppose the main thing is that it's to if for people who may not want to have, you know, uh, loud mobile phone conversations beside them um, or other devices being used excessively, it just gives them the opportunity to be somewhere where that's quieter. Um, maybe that's for, for, for sensory issues or maybe that's also because you may need to get some work done or you may just want to relax and, and sleep on your journey or listen to some music quietly on your headphones or, or watch a movie. Exactly, keep those headphones low because uh, we spoke to Adam Harris from the As I Am Autism group and he he really welcomed this and it's so important isn't it for people with sensory issues to have somewhere quieter to, to go. Yeah, you know, it, it can be a challenge for people if there's a lot of noise and, and, and a lot going on and also we have sensory packs um, that we've introduced recently um, uh, for people who may uh, suffer um, with sensory issues. Um, there's uh, headphones, there's sunglasses and the fidget spinner um, on those uh, in those packs, and they also um, are free for people um, to, um, to 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 use while they're on their journey. It's their their pack to have. Um, we are just awaiting a new stock of um, of merchandise on that. Um, but they've they we launched those last month, and they were really welcomed as well. Jane Cregan from Morning Ireland with Orgy Carville. And today with Claire Byrne began with a powerful and distressing piece about Liam O'Brien's documentary on one 
Blackrock Boys. A documentary set to air tonight will reveal that the Spiritans in Ireland, also known as the Holy Ghost Order, has paid over €5 million Euro in settlement claims and abuse support services since 2004. The special RTE documentary on one production called Black Rock Boys airs tonight at 6pm here on RTE Radio 1. The documentary's producer, Liam O'Brien, is in our Cork studio with, uh, to tell us a little bit more about this. And Liam, we're going to hear clips from the documentary. We are. Featuring, good, morning, good morning to you. Uh, and those clips will feature two siblings who will be speaking about the abuse they suffered at Blackrock College in Dublin during the 70s and 80s. But before we start, I just want to warn listeners that the subject matter that myself and Liam are about to discuss could be distressing to some people and it's not suitable for younger ears. But now, Liam, will you take us through and tell us about this evening's documentary? Yeah, so this evening's DACA 1, Claire, it's the final in our 2022 season. And as you mentioned, it's it's titled Black Rock Boys. And it tells, I suppose, the very personal story of, of, of two brothers, uh, victims, survivors of child sex abuse at Black Rock College in South County Dublin. Um, you know, it's focused specifically on the boys and the abuse they suffered at the hands of a, a spirit and priest in Black Rock College. And Black Rock College itself is one of 10 schools in Ireland that's run by the Spirit and Religious Order. Um, you know, they run in cooperation, those schools in cooperation with lay personnel. But, uh, you know, amongst those 10 schools are some of the most exclusive fee-paying schools in Ireland, one of which is Black Rock College. And in respect of the abuse, what are the years we're talking about, Liam? So we're specifically talking about in the case of the, the two brothers featuring the documentary. Uh, their abuse took place during the 1970s and early 1980s. Um, and I mean, in the documentary itself, we go through the abuse. We also go through the places, the locations that that abuse took place in on the Black Rock College campus, places like the college library, the swimming pools at both Black Rock College and Willow Park, which is the primary school on the grounds of Black Rock College. Now, we're going to play a clip next from the documentary. Can you introduce this for us, Liam, and, and tell us what we're going to hear? Sure. So in this uh, first clip, we're going to hear... Um, it's the older of the two brothers. His name is Mark. And um, basically the clip is about when Mark first went to Black Rock College as a 12-year-old. My parents, they were very proud that I went to Black Rock College. They thought it was a fantastic school. My father had to leave school when he was quite young because his father had died and he had to go out and work. He really wanted the best education for his children. They thought that Black Rock College was it for me. During Mark's first year at Blackrock College, one of the teachers began to take a special interest in him. I was befriended by one of the teachers there, a priest. He saw that I had an interest, I suppose, in basic maths and computers and things like that. And there was a little computer society. This priest, Mark's teacher, gave him his own computer, a rare thing in 1970s Ireland. I now realise I was being groomed. It's a relatively new thought for me. And when I see things now, my understanding is my parents were being groomed. The priest who was grooming Mark was a Holy Ghost father, or Spiritan, as they're now known. So I was in Blackheart College, this particular priest, I'm going to call him the perpetrator because this is what actually happened, the perpetrator, used to invite me down for swimming down in Willow Park, which was the primary school connected to the secondary school. It had its own swimming pool. A Friday evening, Saturday evening, go down for a swim, which was fantastic in its own way, be able to go for a swim. 
Well, that's part of the grooming, being chosen, made to feel special. And he was coming up to our house. My parents thought he was fantastic. So we can hear from what Mark said there, Liam. He was in a really difficult situation. The priest wasn't just grooming him, as he says. He was also grooming his parents. Who was this priest? So the priest in question was a man by the name of Father Tom O'Byrne. And yeah, as you mentioned in respect to that clip, I mean, what Father O'Byrne was doing is he first groomed the family in this question before he then groomed the, the sons or the, the boys. So, I mean, he used to call around regularly or he began calling around regularly to the to the family home. Um, and like in the context of, of the times we're talking about, the 70s and 80s, you know, for some families certainly it would have been seen almost as an honour that, you know, a teacher or especially a priest from Blackrock College, you know, to be calling to their home. Certainly that's how some parents would have seen it. So, you know, cups of tea, chats over dinner, maybe even the odd glass of whiskey. Um, I mean, in the case of, of Mark and David, the two brothers featured in this evening's documentary, like their mum and dad felt that Father O'Byrne was genuinely calling, you know, to help their sons. Like, uh, and but, you know, what he was actually doing here was he was slowly and gradually targeting these two young brothers. Like he gained the trust of their parents first and he did that so, you know, that then allowed him to gain time with him on his own with the, with the two boys. And I suppose it's worth saying that, you know, there's a couple of years of difference in age between Mark and David. And so at no point were they together with uh, Father O'Byrne, the priest. You know, they, they had their own sets of, uh, own groups of friends and so they would individually be with him, you know. Mm-hmm. And after seven years of abuse, Liam explained the effects on both brothers. I mean, the, I don't think there's any other word to describe it other than like it was utterly devastating for them. Like it, it's changed their lives. It's changed, like it changed their lives in that moment, you know, when they were children because it, it it was hugely damaging in every possible way. I mean, they had been totally isolated by this priest. You know, he exerted control and pressure over them, especially on David, the, the younger brother, you know, and, like, the result of all of that changed their lives in that moment during all of their teenage years, but then the legacy of the abuse and, and the trauma of having to deal with it. I mean, they never spoke about it for many, many years. So... You know, Mark and David, for a long period of time, they didn't even know about each other's abuse. And what happened when they left school? So, you know, they did their best at 18 years of age to to try and forge on in life, really. Like, they, you know, they didn't know how to cope. I mean, there was no coping mechanisms in place uh, back then. And essentially, they kind of tried to run away from it all. Um, and actually they both ended up moving to different locations in the UK. And you're going to play now for us a second clip from the documentary, Liam. Yeah, so this clip uh, begins with David. So David's Mark's younger brother. And in this particular clip, we're going to hear the exact moment that the brothers, that Mark and David, revealed the abuse, uh, their abuse to their parents. But like it's also the exact moment that they themselves find out about each other's abuse. I never spoke about it. I never talked about it, tried to forget about it. I suffered terribly from psoriasis, which is, now we know why, nerves. That's why I thought running away to England, it'll be all gone. But it never goes. It, it just crept up and more and more. And that's when I came back to Ireland. That was in 2002. 
For more than 20 years, David and Mark had been trying to deal with the abuse on their own. But David now knew he wasn't able. He came back to stay with his mum and dad at their home in Black Rock. And in early April 2002, the 6 o'clock TV news headlines were all about clerical child sexual abuse. The 6 o'clock news came on, Brian Dobson was reading it and it was about child abuse. Good evening and welcome to 6-1. The Catholic Church... And my dad turned around and he said, David, did that priest ever do anything to you down in Blackwood College? And I broke down crying. I said, yeah. And after kind of telling my mum and dad that night, we were in the kitchen. I think we polished up two bottles of wine. We didn't eat dinner. I think there was more tears. And then my dad phoned my brother Mark. And told me that my brother was back in Ireland and he'd had a breakdown and said stuff had happened to him as he was growing up. And that was to do with sexual abuse. And this is when my father rang me up. Did I, was I aware of this or anything like that? And I said, no, I don't know anything. But I said, I believe him. Uh, I believe him immediately. And my father said, why? And I said, well, this is what happened to me as well. And Claire asked Liam about the Spiritans' response to some of the questions the documentary raises. Now, you've been in contact with the Spiritans. Yep. So in relation to the documentary, so about three weeks ago, we sent them a series of questions um, and really those questions were f- kind of focusing on the wider story around Mark and David's okay, abuse. Okay, so we have uh, this response in front of us this yeah. morning. So let's go through it. Father okay. Martin Kelly says, thanks for your letter dated the 19th of October this year in relation to the documentary. He then says... As you'll be aware, a review in 2012 by the National Board for Safeguarding Children in the Catholic Church in Ireland revealed abuse by members of the Irish Spiritans over a 50-year period. At that time, the provincial made a public apology. Since then, and particularly in the last 18 months, more people who have been abused have come forward and have engaged directly with our safeguarding office. Father Kelly goes on to say in the statement that the responses to your queries, Liam, are based on the information currently available to the congregation and that he has, has interpreted your questions in relation to Blackrock and Blackrock Grounds as the campus which consists of Blackrock College and Willow Park Schools and the facilities therein and to abuse which is related to that campus and Father Kelly has interpreted the term spiritans to mean spirit and priests, brothers, seminarians and the term lay people as meaning persons who are not spiritans but who were employed by or volunteered with the congregation. So Liam, the first question you asked was how many individuals have made allegations of abuse against members of the spirit and community in Ireland, priest or lay? And what was the response to that? So Father uh, Martin Kelly's response was, currently our records indicate that 233 identified people have made allegations of abuse against identified Irish Spiritans in ministries throughout Ireland and overseas. And you also asked how many individual spirit and community members, priests or lay, are involved in those 233 allegations. 
Yes, and he told us that a total of 77 Spiritans have now had allegations made against them. So those new numbers, they're significant because that 2012 review by the National Board for Safeguarding Children in the Catholic Church in Ireland, at that time the Spiritans reported that 142 allegations of abuse had been made against 48 Spiritan members. So we're seeing now a significant rise in the number of people who are making allegations and also in the number of Spiritans who've had allegations made against them. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Claire. So another question then that you asked, Father Kelly, was how many of these allegations of abuse relate to having taken place on the grounds of Black Rock College? And what response did you get to that question? Uh, Father Kelly said, we have received complaints from 57 people of abuse alleged to have taken place on the Black Rock College campus. That's new information. That hasn't been made publicly available before now. No, never before. So, I mean... You know, never before have the number of individuals um, been attributed specifically to the number of people who have alleged abuse on the grounds of the Black Rock College campus. You also asked Father Kelly, did the Spiritans, its insurers or any agents on its behalf ever pay or contribute to any legal fees or costs of any Spiritan community members, priests or lay in Ireland in relation to any allegations of abuse? And you went on to say, if so, please confirm the amount. And what was Father Kelly's response to that? He said, it has been the practice of the congregation to cover legal fees incurred by its members in connection with their legal representation in criminal cases. This practice arose in circumstances where members did not have the personal money to do so. Now, you also asked, Father Kelly, if the Spiritans have made any settlements in relation to allegations of abuse. And he told you that they had made settlements with individuals. What more did he say? Yes, so, like, I mean, we're talking about multiple settlements essentially made to to multiple victims and survivors. So since 2004, the amount paid, now this is in terms of settlements, of claims of abuse and also towards support services. That amounts in total since 2004 up to when you got this response to over €5 million. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, Father Kelly also mentioned that all of those settlements were paid for from the Spirit and Congregation resources. Okay, so then one of your final questions was about how many settlements the Spiritans have paid out specifically relating to abuse on the grounds of Blackrock College in Dublin. And Father Kelly tells you in this statement that settlements have been paid to 12 individuals relating to abuse at Blackrock. So that's 12 out of the 57 people, Liam, who've made allegations of abuse on the grounds of Blackrock. Yes, that's correct, Claire. What's been the reaction so far to the scale of the story? I suppose, I mean, like we asked very specific questions of Father Martin Kelly and of the Spiritans. And, um, you know, we were we were glad, I suppose, really, to receive the detailed responses from them on those questions because, I mean... This is all new information to the general public, but I think far more importantly, it's new information for victims and survivors of abuse, not just at any spirit in school in Ireland, but at Blackrock College, Willow Park, you know, the the schools that sit on the grounds of Blackrock College campus. So, I mean, for those victims, you know, they now know that they were never on their own. I mean, even those who have yet to come forward. Liam O'Brien from RTE Documentary on One. That programme is called Black Rock Boys and is available as a podcast at rte.ie podcasts. You can also find someone to listen to your story if this item has affected you. rte.ie slash helplines. 
And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself. Till next time.